a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Look, the battle for your mind is a very real thing. And this program does not exist to tell you what to think. I do this show to invite you to think more clearly and independently about the world around us. And I encourage you to join me each weekday to find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers and to claim your heritage as a free individual. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, also by our friends at uh, Patriot Home Mortgage, that's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, as well as LifesavingFood.com. And I would encourage you to go to my sponsor links, which you will find in my daily show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Just click on them. You can send them some love. You can do business with them if you want, or just send them an email or something. Tell them, hey, I heard your message. So where to begin? I think I want to start. Unfortunately, I'd love to start on a happy note. Today, uh, there was an abundance of puppies and kittens and and things that uh, weren't in the least troubling. You know, in the news, but I'm seeing some pretty troubling stuff right now. And, and particularly as I look toward Australia, I don't know if it's ever been more clear why people who desire absolute control must take away the citizenry's right to defend itself, take away their right to keep and bear arms. I mean, I, th- I can think of about a half dozen videos that I have seen over the weekend, and I did not spend a lot of time online. This is just stuff that popped up on Twitter. But uh, the police in Australia, wow. They are serving and protecting the crap out of these people. I mean, you know, so somebody said somebody said something uh, as, as they show police, you know, swarming and taking to the ground a maskless couple on a beach. Now, keep in mind, they're outdoors, but... That doesn't matter, apparently. Uh, the, the police swarm and take this couple to the ground, and someone says, well, I'm glad to see that uh, Australia is finally getting serious about their COVID policies instead of half-assing it like they were before. I'm just blown away at the, the increasing level of brutality that's being exerted, and it's, it's against peaceful people. Somebody simply being outside without a mask, but the police will swarm them, they will take them down, arrest them, um, I, I actually have a very iconic photo. I've got to figure out how to put this one into the show notes. But uh, it's it's a picture of a guy, hands handcuffed behind his back, being restrained by about five or six police officers, while another officer is forcing a mask onto the guy's face. I mean, this is the iconic photo of where we are headed. This is right up there with the, the iconic photos of, you know, the, the first black students being, you know, ushered into Little Rock High School, you know, while, while uh, people who were segregationists are standing there screaming at them. It's, it's really, it's disturbing, but it also portends that, uh, look, if it can happen in Australia, this is not some backwards communist country. This was a first world nation where people were largely pretty free up until, well, up until a little over a year ago. And in a year, Australia has gone to a full-blown police state. 
and I, I, I don't say this with any desire to see violence. I, I, think, uh, I think violence needs to be a regrettable last resort. But as I see the way that the police are treating the citizens there in Australia, um, this question seriously popped into my mind. Why hasn't somebody started shooting? Why hasn't somebody stepped in? Because they know, you know, the, the police have all the force. The police have the guns. Again, I don't think I don't think violence is something that's uh, laudable. And hey, hey, yeah, let's all let's all get involved. But I also think there's a time and a place for it. And frankly, from what I see coming out of Australia, I think they've hit that time and place. It's really disturbing. And I think one of the hardest things for us. Okay, so we're not Australia, right? If you're listening. I do have listeners in Australia, and uh, mate, my my heart goes out to you. There are freedom-loving people in Australia right now who see clearly what is happening. And, you know, they, they, they're being denied, you know, the basic means of protecting themselves, and they're, they're being told everything they have to do. And I think that uh, this should serve as a warning for the rest of us. You know, one of the biggest challenges we have, people can see, and I, I don't think that it's, it's hard to convince people that, you know, we're moving in a very uh, authoritarian direction. Are we sure we want to go this way? But it appears that a a sizable portion of the American public is either A, okay with it, maybe they like their statism, or B, they they see the the movement and they see the direction it's going, but don't think we're ever really going to get there, right? At some point, everybody's going to wake up, something's going to happen, we're going to see something go, okay, that's enough, let's rein it in and let's, let's, uh, let's make the police state step back down. I don't think it works that way. In fact, Caitlin Johnstone, who is from Australia, says one of the biggest issues that we have is people don't understand how unfree we already are. Can you see where that would be a problem? We don't even, a lot of people, I'm not saying you or me, but a lot of people don't recognize how much freedom we've actually lost. Caitlin Johnstone says one of the biggest and most widespread blind spots among those who oppose totalitarian control by the powerful is the assumption it hasn't already been achieved. She says we've been so busy watching out for the next overtly totalitarian dictatorship that wants to put the jackboot on our necks that we never noticed the covert totalitarians sliding the shackles around our minds. Caitlin Johnstone writes, Everyone thinks about the abusers who beat their spouses, but not the abusers who dominate their spouses' minds with psychological manipulation. Everyone thinks about psychopathic killers prowling the streets, but not the psychopathic killers who rule our world via mass-scale manipulation. By the way, as, a, as an aside, if I can just give an example of this. Following the, the bombing at the Kabul airport that killed 13 U.S. service members and a dozen, uh, dozens of uh, Afghans and other you know, innocent people, the Biden administration announced, well, we took out this ISIS-K leader and, you know, we, we did it with a drone strike and sent a strong message about how you can't mess with us. You don't hear the, the press trumpeting this a lot, but closer investigation done by those who still are journalists revealed it wasn't some terrorist mastermind. It wasn't even an ISIS member. It was an aid worker returning home after delivering water to people all over Kabul returning home to his kids, and it was seven of his children who were blown apart in that drone strike. And yet, do you think anything is ever going to happen 
Do you think do you think the, the people who ordered that killing, who celebrated, who talked about how it shows how strong and how our resolve is, do you think they're ever going to miss a meal? Do you think they're ever going to spend a night in jail? Hardly. So Caitlin Johnstone has a point here. You think about the psychopathic killers prowling the streets, but nobody thinks about the psychopathic killers who would order drone strikes against innocent people and then celebrate it and then quietly just let that one go down the memory hole when it turns out that they killed the wrong person and a whole bunch of innocent people along with the wrong person. Sorry, that one one gets under my skin. That one actually takes my blood pressure up just a notch. Caitlin Johnstone says conspiracy analysts warned the government is trying to give everyone a social credit score to force us all to comply with the agendas of the powerful. In nations where mass scale narrative management through the media and online algorithms already manipulates people into complying with the agendas of the powerful. She says people assume they aren't already behaving exactly how the powerful want them to behave within a civilization whose political monetary and economic systems are already completely under the control of the powerful. People think they are free just because they can go and buy whatever they want in an economy rigged for the powerful, using money rigged for the powerful, because they can say whatever they want on Internet platforms whose algorithms are manipulated by the powerful, because they can vote for a politician who only got on the ballot by being owned by the powerful. I know it makes me uncomfortable, too. But I still think she's telling the truth here. I think she's right. People think they're free because the system let them elect a populist like Donald Trump, even after that populist spent four years doing little but advancing the interests of the powerful. People think they're free because they elect progressives. Or the system lets them elect progressives like Bernie Sanders or AOC. Even those, those, even though those progressives always stop short when it comes time to challenge real power. We're going to come back to Caitlin Johnstone's article here in just a few moments. I'll have a link to it in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I've mentioned before there are many things on which Caitlin Johnstone and I wouldn't see eye to eye. But I think on the really important stuff, she sees it clearly. And I see it too. And that's why I would ask you, consider her voice as one of those voices out there to fill in the gaps and give you a more complete picture of what's going on, not just here at home, but around the world. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You heard me talk about lifesavingfood.com, and hopefully it's something that you took. I noticed a lot of people, I I was uh, hearing from my friend Kendall Whiting, who runs a lifesavingfood.com website, and and, uh, the business there, he was saying that, uh, yeah, we got got some really good uh, response last week when he was uh, throwing the the special for my listeners uh, to celebrate National Preparedness Month, which is just about, uh, just about, you know, done. We're about to flip the calendar page once again. Well, I want to assure you right now, they still have great stocks of food. The special, unfortunately, is over. If you if you hesitated, if you decided, oh, I'm going to wait and see if it will last, sorry, it's done. 
but you'll still find a tremendous collection of food storage and starter kits and long-term kits and survival kits and 72-hour kits and so forth. You can do it to, you can do it big or you can just, you know, do it piecemeal, fill in some gaps in your own plan. But please visit lifesavingfood.com. There's a link in my show notes at the com. I'm sharing with you an article here from Caitlin Johnstone. And I do have a link to this in the show notes as well. People don't understand how unfree we actually are, or we already are. Some people see it. Well, it's coming, you know, by gosh, there's going to be some things that are going to be ugly if we don't do something about it. There's a lot that's already in place, though. No, we're not under a total police state. We're not totally under the jackboot. But uh, we, we've come a lot further than many realize. It's, this is hard for me. I've been paying very close attention for about the last 30 years. And it's still hard for me to, to bust through the cognitive dissonance of seeing it and, and appreciating it for what it is, which is, wow, we are, we are far down that path. Caitlin Johnstone says, people spent generations arguing for the right to own guns so they can defend themselves against tyranny while the iron bars of tyranny were quietly being constructed around them the entire time. She says, Western leftists are so busy arguing with each other, they haven't noticed that the left has been so effectively sabotaged, hijacked, subverted, and neutered in our society that it's now little more than a glorified group chat. Silicon Valley megacorporations have Silicon Valley, that is. Sorry. Silicon Valley, probably a different place. Might be a fun place to hang out. Who knows? Uh, Silicon Valley megacorporations have intimate relationships with powerful government agencies. And those agencies are almost certainly harvesting everyone's data to fine-tune their propaganda operations on the public based on what our information tells them about our thoughts and feelings on subjects relevant to status quo power agendas. If our information is valuable enough to make Facebook into a trillion-dollar company via surveillance capitalism, well, Caitlin Johnstone says that we can be absolutely certain that our information is also valuable enough for opaque government agencies to work on gathering that information for its own purposes. The science of modern propaganda has been in research and development for more than a century, which is an eternity when you think of all the advances in other military technologies that have been achieved during that time. They're only getting better and better at this. Now the Internet has given them unprecedented access to the inner workings of our collective psychology. So a wife who's been psychologically dominated into doing everything her husband wants doesn't notice she's being abused because she isn't being beaten into those things. She thinks she's doing what she wants to do. A population that's been psychologically dominated into doing everything the powerful want doesn't notice that it's being tyrannized because it isn't being forced to do those things at gunpoint. People think they're doing what they want to do. She says, none of the people warning of Orwellian dystopia get it. We're already there. We're already marching in perfect alignment with what our rulers desire for us. We just haven't noticed because we're still able to eat McDonald's and watch internet porn. They're still tightening those bolts in various ways to make sure that we don't escape our prison. But she says, make no mistake, the prison walls are already fully constructed and have been for some time. Now, the walls aren't physical. And the chains are affixed to our minds. But what's the functional difference between a populace which obeys the powerful because it's forced to, and a population which obey or a populace that obeys the powerful because it was manipulated into wanting to? Wow, 
That's that's actually a pretty powerful question there. She says we're trapped, we're checkmated, as long as our minds continue to operate in a way that can be easily manipulated. Now, Caitlin Johnstone says it's possible that humanity can collectively break free from this propaganda-induced trance by means of a mass-scale psychological transformation out of our unhealthy relationship with mental narrative. But she says there, are, there actually are some signs that such a transformation may be on its way. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Every species comes to a point where it either makes the adaptations necessary for its survival or it doesn't. And as the powerful use the chains around our minds to march us all toward an existential cliff's edge of ecocide and nuclear brinkmanship, she says we're about to find out which one we are. Okay, she's taking a pretty hardcore stance here, and I can understand, wow, this might make some people feel a little uncomfortable, to first of all, to hear that the tyranny is worse than what they'd realized, and secondly, to, to think that uh, they were going along with it at some level. Look, I don't, I don't know what the answer is other than I know what the principles and practices of freedom are. I believe that there are some things that are absolutely worth standing up for, even if it comes at personal risk. And though I haven't been, you know, I, I don't think I've been the stalwart example of this that I would like to be. I've had the great fortune of being able to keep company with people who do walk that walk. And by that association, I'm becoming the person that, that, that I would like to be, albeit slowly. I think one of the biggest decisions that we have to make is at the individual level. We have to resolve to be free or to be a beacon of freedom. And that doesn't mean wave the flag harder, chant louder, and, you know, go to more political rallies. That might be a part for some people. But I think the biggest part is simply... Crossing that threshold in our mind that says, I will be a free person. I will not live by the permission of whomever thinks that they are, you know, in in charge of me. I'm not going to be a puppet. And it's a pretty revolutionary act for for someone to think that way. I'm sorry, there's, there's no way around it. You cannot assert your freedoms. You cannot assert your love of liberty or your love of freedom of conscience, or freedom of religion, or freedom of speech, or freedom of association. You can't assert your support for private property rights and the protection of our natural rights without some people seeing and portraying you as a threat, you know, a problem, you're a troublemaker, you're a gadfly. So you better get used to people, you know, questioning your motives, calling you names making some very uh, harsh judgments about what you're really trying to do, and in some cases calling for your imprisonment or your death. I know, I don't want to believe it either, but then again, look at, uh, look at how people have reacted just over COVID policies. Look at how people have been trained to hate the unvaccinated. The psychological, psychological conditioning that Caitlin Johnstone is talking about is just as real as can be. And again, I don't have all the answers. I don't know. Do we fix this from the top down? You know, I don't think we do. I think the way that we fix it, at least in our immediate vicinity, is first and foremost, recognize it for what it is 
and resolve right to the core of our being, I will not be a channel through which more of that attitude comes into the world. I won't share the lies. I won't perpetuate the lust for control over other people. I don't care how big of a toehold this, uh, this mindset has. It won't be coming into the world because of me and my efforts. I know you might think, but I'm just one person. How does that make a difference? I don't know what to tell you other than it does. You have influence on people around you to a far greater degree than you think. We all do. It's just a matter of using that influence wisely. Knowing who you are, knowing what you stand for. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. And by the way, thank you. I know there are so many voices out there to choose from, so many different sources of information. For whatever reason you decided to give it a try, or maybe you're a longtime listener, thanks for sticking with me. I really appreciate you giving me a shot. As I mentioned before, I don't ever have all the answers. I don't, I don't have omniscience. I don't claim to know how it all shakes out. But I do have a fairly strong sense of right and wrong, and, and I'm not afraid to, to speak up to, to those truths that I've committed to. I'll do my very best not to mislead you, but I'll definitely give you some things to think about that will hopefully get you thinking a little more broadly and a little more clearly and independently about the world around us. By the way, my show is brought to you by great sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. It's a wild real estate market in the state of Utah right now, but if you are within the state of Utah and hearing my voice, you uh, you have the opportunity, especially if you're one of the people moving to Utah, to take advantage of some very, very low interest rates. And uh, if you're looking to refinance your home or if you're looking to buy a home, VA loan, traditional loan, reverse mortgage, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability and the clout to help you get the loan you're looking for and most importantly, to do it without delay. Yeah, timing is of the essence. Now, you can contact Heather at 703-4522. Sorry, that's area code 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, Utah, visit her office at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You know, I've been paying attention to the colleges and universities for uh, probably the last 25 years or so, I've watched as they have become the proving grounds for politically correct thought and for, uh, you know, creating new social justice warriors. This has been going on for decades. And it used to be, if you wanted to find out, what's the most unfree place in the world? Um, 20 years ago, uh, a little more than 20 years ago, prior to 9-11, I would have told you, a college campus. That's where you're going to find political correctness starting to you know, metastasize and really take hold. And it's where you'll find speech codes. It's where anybody who has a differing opinion is going to be shouted down. It's only gotten worse in that time. I mean, come on, now they have safe spaces. And anybody comes to speak at a particular university and, oh, they're not on target with, you know, whatever this ideological faction wants. Well, we'll get violent. We'll do everything we can to prevent them from speaking. Pretty crazy stuff. And I guess another example of that authoritarian attitude 
has been seen in how many colleges and universities uh, have proven to be uh, pretty, pretty big heel clickers when it comes to their COVID policies. In fact, Michael Tracy is warning that uh, we need to be careful because academia is establishing a permanent surveillance bureaucracy that he says will soon govern the rest of the country. This is published on his Substack, and I have a link to this in the show notes. Michael Tracy says, Having now received a tsunami of messages from people across the U.S. and a few internationally about the surveillance regimes being permanently installed at their educational institutions, in contravention of earlier assurances that the current academic year would mark a long-awaited return to normalcy, thanks to the onset of max vaccination, mass vaccination, rather, there are a few conclusions to draw. First, he says, unless and until COVID cases are abandoned as a metric by which policy action is presumptively dictated, these institutions are destined to continue flailing from irrational measure to irrational measure for the foreseeable future. Just turn your gaze over to one of America's most hallowed pedagogical grounds. As of September 17th, Columbia University has newly forbidden students from hosting guests, visiting residence halls other than their own, and gathering with more than 10 people. What's the stated rationale for these restrictions? Well, administrators have extrapolated from the contact tracing data they've compulsorily seized that a recent increase in viral transmission is attributable to students socializing unmasked at gatherings at residence halls and at off-campus apartments, bars, and restaurants. Socializing at apartments, bars, and restaurants in the middle of Manhattan? Wow! I can't imagine anything more heinous, says Michael Tracy. Just like Connecticut College and so many other institutions, he says, I've been taking flurries of messages about them. Columbia has now already mandated vaccination for all students, faculty, and staff, and they're approaching 100% compliance. But as has now been made abundantly clear, for many people in positions of bureaucratic authority, universal vaccination was never going to be sufficient for a transition away from the permanent emergency mode of covid theology. The perverse incentives are easy to grasp. These administrators have so much invested in the infrastructure of case detection that they've constructed over the last year and a half, not to mention the wider ideological project of stopping the spread at all costs, that it's impossible to imagine conditions under which they'd voluntarily move to dismantle the surveillance systems over which they preside. And not just because the new powers conferred by this infrastructure, namely the ability to micromanage the private lives of young adults, track and adjudicate the propriety of their movements, etc., is probably creepily intoxicating on a level these administrators may not be overtly conscious of, and in any event would almost certainly never publicly admit. No, he says the infrastructure won't be dismantled anytime soon, because doing so would also require accepting a major paradigm shift in how COVID is understood. And for certain segments of society, the whole system of thought is just too all-consuming. Benign instances of transmission, in other words, transmission that results in no severe disease, which is almost invariably the case with vaccinated young adults at astronomically low risk from COVID, would have to stop being portrayed as alarming outbreaks, necessitating a never-ending stream of frenzied Zoom strategy meetings and swift, all-hands-on-deck interventionist tactics. In fact, he says the very word outbreak would also probably have to be ditched, given its alarmist connotations. 
He says, I would suggest instead that outbreak be applied to these frantic upswells of bureaucratic overreaction. Perhaps the epidemiological origins of this diseased mentality could be contact traced. Ooh, I love this. Let's put that shoe on the other foot. Why should anyone be alarmed by an alleged outbreak of overwhelmingly asymptomatic or mild cases among a population of healthy, vaccinated undergrads? Cases which never would have been detected at all if not for the superfluous surveillance testing structures that these institutions require students to submit to. And before anyone chimes in with the standard, well, they could transmit to others, response, he says, the others they've, they've been surrounded by have had the opportunity to get vaccinated at no cost for the past eight months. Even the U.S. prestige media is beginning to reject the utility of using cases as a benchmark for anything of consequence. So you'd think college administrators would eventually follow suit. But a combination of bureaucratic inertia and weirdly flamboyant zeal appears to be preventing that from happening. Michael Tracy says, having read way too much administrative jargon recently, there are a number of obnoxious rhetorical strategies they employ to engender acceptance of edicts that more and more people seem to recognize are wildly, overbearingly arbitrary. We all need to hold each other accountable, these administrators will often pronounce, or some variation thereof, which ironically shields them from accountability for their own capricious and intrusive actions. Their orders are often cloyingly filled with artificial appeals to the community, which raises the question of who elected these surveillers and snoops to be spokespersons for the community, and how they even define communities which seems to contain growing segments of unwilling inhabitants. He says, one key thing that I know is that despite their pretension of acting at the direction of expert epidemiologists and public health officials, the day-to-day decisions about practical implementation at these places often come down to the individual discretion of officials who in no sane world would ever be deferred to on questions of infectious disease protocol or really anything of significance. The latest restrictions at Columbia were promulgated by the Dean of Undergraduate Student Life. One of those titles you, mo- you know must encompass a whole slew of useless, indecipherable make-work and now tends to include a never-ending cycle of COVID monitoring. In her official bio, Dean Kristen Scully-Crom of Columbia is described as having an esteemed background in something called residence life and leadership oversight. Michael Tracy says, I don't know about you but I can think of few things more unappealing than to have my personal activity surveilled by official busybodies who've dedicated their careers to learning the majesties of leadership oversight, which sounds like a field invented especially for people who enjoy receiving LinkedIn emails. It's a marvelous article. There's much more to it. I hope you'll take a look at it. It's included in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Again, Michael Tracy, Academia, Academia is establishing a permanent surveillance state. And the trouble is, like we saw with you know some of the things that have taken place at the airport and so forth, these things have a tendency to hang on long after their usefulness is done. So, I mean, if you thrive on authoritarianism, yeah, the airport's a good place to go. So is a college campus. At what point do people stop being scared and say, enough? I suppose we're about to find out. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Listen, before I go any further, I just want to throw this reminder out there for you. The world is still a beautiful place. How do I know this? Well, I took a little uh, little sightseeing tour. As, as my friends know, I am Mr. Fall. Let me check. Yep, I'm wearing plaid. Don't have a pumpkin latte in front of me, but, uh, you know, that's <laughs> wouldn't be too far out of the question if, if I liked latte. But uh, I went to go uh, do some leaf watching over the weekend. Drove into the South Hills and just went bonkers for how beautiful it is. And it was, it was nice for a couple of reasons. And I'm, I'm just offering this. If you have some place where you can go to just enjoy the fall leaves, do it. Number one, you can unplug from the matrix. You can unplug from all the bad news. Don't worry, I'll be here to tell you what's going on when you get back. But there's just something very restorative about being in nature and appreciating that beauty. And here's the, here's the best part. Anytime you, you make time in your life to unplug and especially to, to get back to nature and to just appreciate what's there, you are proving the truth that beauty exists in this world and it is not reserved just for the elite. In other words, the Davos crowd, the, the very fancy people partying with Obama on Martha's Vineyard, it's not just for them. It's for you. You just got to be willing to put your hand out there and take it. So don't miss those opportunities. All right, moving on. People who thrive on centralized power seem to be among the loudest and most insistent proponents of telling others, follow the science. And there's a great article from Sheldon Richmond. This was published on everythingvoluntary.com. Actually, everything-voluntary.com. Sheldon Richmond warns that mixing science in the state is a sure way to get coercive policies that feed the government science complex and its harmful orthodoxies. He says the government science complex ostensibly promotes the search about facts for our world, but it actually promotes and enforces orthodoxy, protects protects resulting paradigms, and manufactures apparent consensuses that are questioned only at one's reputational peril. He says that's why I put the word science in quotation marks. I could have called it pseudoscience or junk science. Now, he says, in contrast to real science, science, in quotation marks, is little more than the broadcast of evidence-free alarms that politicians and bureaucrats advised by anointed government-financed, in quotation marks, scientists, used to justify political action and expansion of government intrusion into our lives. The price is liberty. Now, he says, the procedure starts with a politically amenable conclusion and then moves to a search for confirmation regardless of whatever intentions of good science and statistical analysis are required. Those who voice doubts about any of this, despite their credentials and previous standing, will be subjected to attacks even on their character. The official slogan of establishment, science, might as well be, orthodoxy first, protect the paradigm. Now, someone of note saw this coming. In 1961, President Dwight Eisenhower gave his televised farewell address, which has become famous for its warning against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. 
Eisenhower went on to say, we must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Now, Sheldon Richmond says, it makes one want to cheer. Far less known but equally important in his eyes was Eisenhower's warning against the government's centralization of scientific research, which became a real concern after World War II and the onset of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. As he put it, quote, akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Eisenhower went on to say, yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, he says we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. End quote. Now, Sheldon Richmond says this is truly remarkable, not to mention prescient. He says, I don't know if Eisenhower was quite right. Has public policy become captive of a scientific technological elite, or is it the other way around? It's probably a combination of both. But he says, we can readily understand how politicians and government grant managers would naturally be attracted to research that supports their wish for more, not less power. Some scientists, who are after all human beings too, would then be tempted to cater to this demand, which can create its own supply. If the government shows no interest in financing research that proclaims X, Y, or Z is not a problem, justifying a political solution, wouldn't you expect the number of researchers inclined that way to dwindle? He says, for decades, scientists and their universities have gone through government cash, have prospered rather through government cash by spreading fear, either real but exaggerated or invented. And this has gone far beyond research on weapons and other narrow wartime missions. Three prominent examples since World War II are the fear of dietary animal fat and cholesterol, the fear of carbon dioxide, which all life depends on, and the fear of other people, specifically of catching COVID-19 from them. Now, this isn't to say that pre-vaccine COVID-19 was not a serious danger to identifiably identifiably vulnerable people, only that it's been exaggerated beyond all reason. Sheldon Richmond says the point here is that this would have been far less likely, maybe even impossible, if scientific research funding were not concentrated in the government's hands, largely through universities which are hooked on taxpayer money. He says many people believe that the taxpayers must bear the biggest burden of scientific research because no one else has an interest in doing so. So this is in essence a public goods or externality argument for government finance. According to this argument, the cost of doing something would fall mostly on the doer, but the benefits would mostly fall on others. And charging free riders would be unfeasible, then no uh, doer would have a business interest in the project. 
Now, that's said to be a market failure because everyone would miss out on a benefit. Thus, most economists have thought the government, with its exclusive power to tax, had to come to the rescue for the good of society. But he says that theory, like the theories used to justify the fears mentioned above, doesn't mirror the historical record. The insistence that basic research won't be done by private firms sounds like the fictional scientist who insisted the bumblebee was aerodynamically incapable of flying. He needed only to look out the window. Well, it turns out that private investment in research has been profitable when the government stayed out. Writers such as Terence Keeley, Patrick Michaels, and Matt Ridley have shown in recent books that countries that led the way in the Industrial Revolution were precisely those. Great Britain and the United States that had almost no government support for basic scientific research until rather late in the game. In other words, private business people found the required research profitable and changed the world. Keeley and Michael show, moreover, that post-war U.S. government spending on basic science and research and development has not increased economic growth over the previous period. In fact, those writers also point out that revolutionary inventions by non-scientists have sometimes preceded or even stimulated interest in basic scientific research, the steam engine being a case in point. Moreover, the assertion that competitors will merely copy other firms' products, that is, free ride on others' research, is more myth than fact because, among other reasons, much knowledge is tacit and not freely attainable through reverse engineering. That certainly blunts the utilitarian case for patents. He says, we shouldn't be surprised that decentralization, intellectual competition, and above all, freedom from government restriction are what foster human well-being. The harm from coerced, that is, from government-fostered monopoly, is well known. And Sheldon Richmond says, the harm is just as bad in the production of knowledge as it is in the production of goods. It's a triple whammy for the taxpayers. They get robbed, they get regimented, and they get fear-mongering junk science for their trouble. Well, that kind of makes sense. If you want to check this out, maybe share it with some friends. Take a look at my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You will find a link to this article as well as others. In fact, you will find an entire section of my website dedicated to resources for wrong thinkers. If you like to read, you're going to find it heavenly. If you don't like to read, might not be a bad idea to build up that habit until it becomes enjoyable. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I am so glad that you uh, found your way to this little program. And wherever you happen to be catching us. I mean, I have watched with amazement as uh, technology has developed. And my heart still belongs to terrestrial radio. I love radio. Very grateful to uh, Canyon Media in St. George, Utah, uh, for, for airing my show in, in my old stomping grounds. I love uh, love the St. George market. Still consider it the most beautiful place I've, I've ever lived. 
in terms of just natu- uh, just you know natural geographic beauty, hands down. That St. George area is absolutely something to behold. And apparently the word has gotten out because they've grown like gangbusters in the 25 years since I first moved there. Also, grateful to the various networks that carry this program. And of course, there are podcast platforms to choose from as well. You have a lot of choices. I mean, the beauty and the immediacy of radio is great. If you're one of those people, though, who's on a time schedule or you have free time at various times and you want to listen at your leisure, well, that's the that's the beauty of podcasting. And I'll admit, I was pretty slow to the game, but uh, now I'm there. I'm in. Happy to be there. And uh, this program exists for the purpose of encouraging independent thought, which is not the same thing as you must agree with me or you're stupid and evil. So just just so we're clear on that, I'm not going to ridicule you if you disagree with me. Um, I'm okay if if people want to attack me. My skin has thickened considerably over the years, and um, that's that's the price of standing for something. You've got to be willing to take a few hits if you're going to stand for something. In fact, the more hits you're taking, the more likely you are having impact. So a few things to think about. Our program brought to you each weekday by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org lifesavingfood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So I want to start with, I want to, I actually want to begin with the home birth. And this is going to be kind of a weird departure, but I have to tell you that my wife and I experienced uh, home birth for ourselves 25 years ago. This was the birth of our second daughter, Brooke. And at the time, you know, I I was a pretty dedicated, you know, defender of freedom, but didn't know nearly as much as I understand today. And by the way, that doesn't mean I have all the answers today. It just means, you know, my, my depth has, has increased a bit over the years through, you know, consistent effort to try to understand. And I remember how people looked at us as, wow, this is really, well, this is a very uh, radical thing for you and your wife to be having a baby. I remember my boss's wife at the time was like, well, you know, I would have died if I had my kids anywhere but a hospital. Okay, now she was also not necessarily, you know, the healthiest person to start with, but people really tried to scare us out of home birth. And and the, the whole reason that uh, Becky and I decided to do home birth in the first place was because uh, my work, without telling anybody, dropped our maternity coverage, okay? Wife and I are newlyweds, and, you know, we we uh, we were not aware that they had dropped it, so when uh, when Becky came up pregnant with our second child, it was like, oh, man. Now we have no maternity policy, and we decided, well, let's see if let's see if we can do this. It seems like you know we'd heard positive things about it, and actually, it turned out to be one of the most amazing experiences ever. Um, I'm not going to denigrate because we've done we've done hospital birth, we have done home birth, we have done hospital birth with a doula midwife. You know, they're helping um, a, a certified nurse midwife. We've had that happen too. We, we've done a lot of different uh, different aspects of this. But there was something very special about that home birth. I, I don't know how to describe it. Probably, probably more of a spiritual kind of thing than, than anything else. But it was a hugely positive experience. And, and most important because it, it showed us we can do hard things. And especially we can do hard things outside of a hospital setting. See, the same dread that I used to feel going to the airport because of the extreme or authoritarian mindset that's taken hold there, um, I'm starting to feel that today about hospitals. In fact, I was just looking, there was an article here on lourockwell.com, um, 
Hospital fascism. Interesting things going on at a large local chain of hospitals. This is from Larry L. Bean. He says, normally parking is free and ticket collection systems are disabled, but now there's a lineup to get into the parking garage. You receive a ticket, but nobody collects it or any money on the way out because it turns out that in the aftermath of the hurricane, so apparently he must live down on the Gulf Coast, FEMA is paying the hospital for parking, which is free anyway. Interesting. Next, he says, I learned the cost of ambulances is being reimbursed, re- reimbursed rather by FEMA, but they're still billing the customer and the insurance companies just the same. Ka-ching! <laughs> How long before all of this double and triple dipping gets investigated and it becomes a huge scandal? Well, Larry Bean says, probably never. The parasites cover for each other while the taxpayer pays the bill. But meanwhile, he asks, where's Antifa? This partnership between big business and big government is the dictionary definition of fascism. So let's shift from the parking situation. And there's a great article from Kerry McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education that points out that with the, the extreme COVID protocols at hospitals, more and more pregnant women are choosing home birth as an alternative. I, I don't want to sound like I'm denigrating the, the people who are working, you know, the, the hospitals. Um, I know people who, you know, work within the medical profession. I know people who work at the hospital. My daughter, my oldest daughter, actually is uh, studying to be a nurse and works as a CNA. Um, these are good, dedicated people. Okay, they're not a bunch of power-hungry tyrants. But the system in which they work is becoming absolutely authoritarian. To the point, and with all the COVID hysteria that's going on, um, I'll tell you, man, if I, was, if I was having shortness of breath, clammy sweat, and, and feeling the weight of a tank parked on my chest, I mean, that would be pretty classic. Uh, oh, you better get to the ER right away. Given this rigid authoritarian mindset that has taken hold in hospitals, I'd actually have to stop and think, is it worth it? Because it seems like once you set foot on their property, once you walk through the door, you are bound by their protocols. And and this is, you know, we have to follow this. And I don't know. It's very possible that I'm overreacting the wrong way. But I'm saying I would I would do anything possible to avoid going to the hospital. Even if it was clear that, wow, you know, you're you're bleeding a lot there, dude. Hand me that uh, soldering, soldering iron. I'm going to cauterize this myself. I don't know. There, there are some places where, where I could see it being very helpful, but I think we're seeing a very authoritarian mindset take hold, and that's that's not a good thing. Carrie McDonald weighs in on this as it applies to, to birth. She says, when I decided to have my third baby at home, I did so because I felt that a home birth with an experienced midwife would be the safest place for labor and delivery. She says, my first two children were born in a large Boston teaching hospital and medical interventions there caused complications for me. But she says, my last two children were born at home on their own time with no interventions and no complications. In fact, she has a link to her home birth experience in the article. Carrie says, more women are now discovering the safety and joy of a planned midwife assisted home birth. And she says, the coronavirus has caused expecting parents to question the safety of a hospital birth. While restrictive hospital policies such as mask wearing and visitor limitations make labor and delivery in a hospital less appealing. 
Apparently, according to uh, Joyce Kimball, a certified uh, professional midwife in Massachusetts, more women are considering a home birth now than they were pre-pandemic. My practice has seen an uptick in the interest of home birth and community birth since the spring of 2020, says Joyce Kimball, who runs one of the busiest home birth practices in the state. Prior to 2020, she says, I would receive one to two calls a week from people interested in a non-hospital birth. Now, I receive about four to five calls per week. And she says, every month I have a full panel of clients and refer away several people a month. And this trend is occurring in midwifery practices across the country. Now, Carrie McDonald says, many of the reasons why these pregnant mothers are contemplating a home birth now are the same as they were before COVID hit. They want a more personalized, less institutionalized birth experience. They want more control over the labor and delivery process. They want to be surrounded by a supportive birthing team, including family members, friends, and perhaps their own children, in addition to their midwives. They don't want to be separated from their other children, or from their baby, rather, at any time, and they don't. They, they may pay more in hospital co-pays and deductibles for maternity care than they would for a home birth. But they recognize that for most healthy women, birth is a life event rather than a medical one. Oh, we've had this discussion a few times on my program. In fact, if, if the, the rumors are true, once upon a time at Dixie Regional Medical Center, the whole, uh, whole uh, obstetrics floor labor and delivery was cussing my name because I was talking to too many midwives on my show. Hey, I just think it's great to have choices. Is there really something wrong with that? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Do you want to mention that our show is brought to you by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. If you are one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West right now, I don't have to tell you how hot the real estate market is. You're probably still trying to pick your jaw up off your chest. But the point is, when you find the home of your dreams, your financing has to be squared away right now. You cannot delay while you go and get your paperwork in order. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. If you are hearing my voice and you are moving to the state of Utah, Heather is the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. You can contact her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, swing by her office at 619 South Bluff Street. Or you can also uh, click on my show notes. You'll find an email where you can reach out and contact her directly. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I'm sharing an article here from Carrie McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education about how extreme COVID policies at the hospital are causing more and more women to choose a home birth. One of the key points that she makes in this article is most women recognize that a healthy Home birth is a life event, or actually a healthy birth is a life event. It's not a medical one. And yet we've got people trained with, oh my gosh, she's having a baby. Call an ambulance. Oh my gosh, we need advanced life support. We need all this stuff. I remember one of the, the interesting discussions that came up in the course of debating, you know, home birth versus hospital birth. And there's some very staunch advocates. You know, you'll find some extremes actually on both sides of this. But 
one of the things that was pointed out by a, uh, I think it was a hospital uh, emergency room nurse, was in a time of disaster, let's say that there's a disaster and hospital resources are overwhelmed. I don't know, you know, maybe, I don't, I don't know if this would be true in a pandemic or not, but when hospital resources are strained and there's very little space, you know, beds through which they can care for patient, their patients, pregnant women or women even in labor would be sent home. Why? Because it's not an emergency. It's a natural experience. Unless they've got some kind of, you know, defined or or diagnosed high risk otherwise. Now, according to uh, Joyce Kimball, certified professional midwife from Massachusetts, COVID has increased the desirability of home birthing. Carrie McDonald says Kimball tells her that pregnant women may now feel more uneasy during their prenatal care with the heightened focus on COVID protocols when consulting with their health care provider. They may not want to get tested for COVID in the hospital and have to wear a mask during labor and delivery. And they may not like the idea of keeping that mask on during their postpartum hospital stay, creating an artificial barrier to bonding with their baby. And they may not want their newborn exposed to hospital germs, including COVID. Carrie McDonald says prior to the pandemic, interest in out-of-hospital births was growing in the U.S. It's estimated that about 62,000 of the roughly 4 million U.S. births in, 26, in 2017 rather, occurred at home or in a freestanding birth center. And the number of U.S. out-of-hospital births increased by almost 80% between 2004 and 2017. Now, this rise in home births may be at least a partial reaction to the country's dismal hospital birth record. Despite significant spending, the U.S. has some of the highest rates of maternal mortality and morbidity of any industrialized country. That's especially among women of color. A 2018 USA Today investigative report concluded the U.S. is the most dangerous place to give birth in the developed world. Interesting. A planned home birth with an experienced midwife, on the other hand, can be both safe and rewarding. According to a 2021 study published in Frontiers of Sociology about the rise in home births since the start of COVID, laboring women have been continually achieving safe outcomes in private homes and freestanding birth centers with the assistance of midwives in the U.S. and abroad. But COVID-19 has disrupted the, the perspective of actual safety because staying at home offers better protection from the pandemic for childbearers than sharing a hospital with disease-stricken patients. Carrie McDonald writes, new hospital COVID policies also may inadvertently drive more women toward home birthing in the months ahead. For instance, fees John Miltimore recently wrote about a hospital in upstate New York that has announced a pause in its labor and delivery services this month due to so many of its nurses and other healthcare workers quitting over COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Some of those expecting mothers may choose to consider a home birth instead, particularly in light of recent efforts to expand home birth across access rather in the state. Former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signed an executive order in 2020 to allow certified professional midwives to practice midwifery in the state to help alleviate the burden on hospitals due to the pandemic. But that order expired back in June. Advocates have since tapped the state legislature to support the role of home birth midwives in the state. Now, until the recent COVID-related executive order, certified professional midwives were forbidden to attend births in New York, and some longtime home birth midwives have been arrested there for delivering babies. 
One of the highest profile arrests was that of his, that of Elizabeth Catlin, a midwife who has been attending home births in New York for decades, particularly in the state's rural Mennonite community. In 2018, she was arrested and charged with 95 felony counts for being an unlicensed midwife. Now, Catlin is a certified professional midwife, a credential recognized in 30 states, but not in New York until the 2020 COVID-related executive order. Last week, Catlin agreed to a plea deal that dropped 94 of the charges against her and left her pleading to one charge of practicing midwifery without a license. That's a felony, though. She will be sentenced in December. Carrie McDonald says COVID has disrupted many previously entrenched sectors from education to health care. Frustrated by COVID policies in schools or fearful of virus spread, families have shifted away from institutionalized learning and towards schooling alternatives, such as homeschooling. Similarly, more expecting parents, frustrated by hospital COVID policies or fearful of the virus, are turning away from an institutionalized birth toward home birthing and other out-of-hospital birth options. She says restrictive institutional policies in both education and health care are accelerating the growth and popularity of more decentralized choices in these sectors and continued loosening of occupational licensing requirements such as those impacting New York's midwives along with ongoing deregulation in health care and education will expand choice and opportunity for parents from where they give birth to how their children learn. I love Carrie's take on just about anything. She is a senior education fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. She's the author of the book, Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom. And she is definitely the go-to source. If you want to talk about educational choice, Carrie has you covered. She's really on top of this. I think she's probably been one of the best advocates that homeschool uh, homeschoolers and, and people who are homeschool curious could turn to for good, solid information about the different alternatives that exist. So it tickles me to see her uh, writing a little bit about the, the home birth versus institutional birth decision. I get it. You know, we have modern conveniences, and, and look, I, I want to take advantage of those as best I can, too. At the same time, there are some very legitimate concerns about the, the different protocols and how extreme sometimes they can be enforced. Doesn't it strike you odd that uh, you know countries like Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, isn't that interesting? All these Scandinavian countries have largely dropped all of their COVID restrictions. Why aren't we hearing more about the terrible death rate and how everybody there is just simply dropping dead because they're not following some centralized, top-down, you know, mitigation protocols? I don't have the answer, but uh, I'll tell you, you can get some great information, uh, particularly by going to fee.org, F-E-E dot org. Pay close attention to anything that uh, John Miltimore is writing, too, because he's been one of the leading voices on this matter and has some very good data. He doesn't just, well, here's what I think, and throw it out there and see if it sticks to the wall. The man crunches the numbers, and uh, he's he's very good in his reporting. So consider that a recommendation. Got to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout out to lifesavingfood.com. This is one of my sponsors, and I would encourage you to please, please click on the link that I provide in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, lifesavingfood.com. You can get a 10% discount by mentioning uh, my name, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon at checkout. We had a great special that we were running last week. I'm sorry to say that has come and gone, but uh, you know, kudos to those of you who took advantage of it. Look, if you are looking to begin a food storage program, I think you'll find that they have plenty of options to to choose from. If you have an existing food storage program and you just need to fill in a few gaps here and there, this is a great time to do it. I know I'm I'm seeing a few shortages, weird, you know, empty shelves. And I don't know if all the container ships sitting off the coast of California, you know, has anything to do with this. I don't know. I know there are some ongoing supply chain breakdowns. People who are in the building or manufacturing industries, you know what I'm talking about certain parts and things you can't get. This would be a really good time to just make sure that your self-reliance is squared away. Lifesavingfood.com can sure help you in that regard. And as a special bonus for my listeners, mention HYDE, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code at checkout, and you can save 10% on your purchase. So I know you have uh, a lot of things on your plates, right, with the pandemic and economic troubles, political unrest and intrigue right now. Here's one more thing to keep you awake at night. Researchers are warning of a potential solar superstorm that could knock out the Internet for months at a time. This was published on ZeroHedge.com. I've got a link in the show notes. And I'll just I'll touch on this. I think this was originally published on the Epic Times But it says the black swan event of a solar superstorm directed at Earth could prompt an Internet apocalypse, apocalypse rather, across the entire globe that could last for several months. This is according to new research. University of California, Irvine, assistant professor Sangeetha Abdu Jayothi presented the new research titled Solar Superstorms, Planning for an Internet Apocalypse. That's a catchy title, last month during the Association for Computing Machinery's annual conference for their special interest group on data communication. One of the greatest dangers facing the Internet with the potential for global impact is a powerful solar superstorm, Jayothi wrote in a new research paper. Although humans are protected from these storms by the Earth's magnetic field and atmosphere, they can cause significant damage to man-made infrastructure. The scientific community is generally aware of this threat with modeling efforts and precautionary measures being taken, particularly in the context of power grids. However, the networking community has largely overlooked this risk during the design of the network topology and geo-distributed systems such as DNS and data centers, he continued. So a solar storm, also known as a CME or coronal mass ejection, occurs when a large mass of plasma and highly magnetized particles violently eject from the sun. Large CMEs can contain up to a billion tons of matter and can get accelerated to large fractions of the speed of light. Now, when the Earth is in the direct path of a CME, these magnetized and charged solar particles interact with the Earth's magnetic field, producing geomagnetically induced currents, or GIC, that can potentially disrupt communication satellites and long-distance cables that provide the world with the Internet. According to Diothi's research, research rather, power grids, oil and gas pipelines, and networking cables 
are the most vulnerable to the impact of geomagnetically induced currents. While submarine cables, which span hundreds of or, or hundreds or thousands of kilometers, are even more vulnerable than land cables due to their larger lengths. Owing to a lack of real-world data on the impact of GICs, at least on these submarine cables, scientists still don't know how long it would take to repair them if such an event were to occur. And just like natural disasters such as earthquakes, CMEs are extremely difficult for scientists to predict. The research noted that distribution of Internet infrastructure is skewed when compared to the distribution of Internet users. And high-latitude climates are more at risk if a solar storm, storm rather, were to occur. Apparently, the U.S. is one of the most vulnerable locations, with a high risk of disconnection from Europe during extreme solar events. Intracontinental connections in Europe are at lower risk due to the presence of a large number of shorter land and submarine cables interconnecting the continent, the report notes. Meanwhile, if a severe solar superstorm were to occur, Singapore would maintain good connectivity rather, to neighboring countries while cities in China would be more likely to lose connectivity than India because China connects to much longer cables. Australia, New Zealand, and other island countries in the region would be at high risk of losing most of their long-distance connections. Yeah, one more thing to worry about, right? The research warns that a collapse of the Internet, even one lasting a few minutes, could cause devastating losses to service providers and damage cyber-physical systems. The economic impact of Internet disruption for a day in the United States is estimated to be over $7 billion. Now, here's the good news, okay? Now that, now that we've got the panic all ginned up and, oh, my gosh, this is the next thing coming, the likelihood of a su- solar superstorm hitting the Earth is rare, with astrophysicists noting that the probability of extreme space weather events that directly impact Earth occurring are between 1.6% to 12% per decade. But don't forget, they can still happen. In 1921, a solar storm driven by a series of coronal mass ejections triggered extensive power outages and caused damage to telephone and telegraph systems associated with railroad systems in New York City and across the state. Years later, in 1989, a solar storm brought an electrical power blackout to the entire province of Quebec, Canada. Now, Jahathi said, although we have Sentinel spacecraft that can issue early warnings of CMEs providing at least 13 hours of lead time, our defenses against GIC are limited. Hence, we need to prepare the infrastructure for an eventual catastrophe to facilitate efficient disaster management. The research pointed to increasing capacity in lower latitudes for improved resiliency during solar storms and having mechanisms for electronically isolating cables connecting higher latitudes from the rest at submarine cable landing points to prevent large-scale failures. Apparently, this paper has yet to appear in a peer-reviewed journal, but it's something to keep in mind. Now, I'm going to take it one step further and tell you if you really want to get an unflinching but very scientific and principled take on what's happening with the sun, I would recommend you subscribe to Suspicious Observer's YouTube channel and get their daily updates. Now, I'll be honest, the, this is astrophysics, and it's, it's a lot of the vocabulary is above my head. But I love their daily four- or five-minute-long updates 
where they talk about here's what's happening with the sun. And, and I mean, they can show you. They've got the not only the data, but they'll show you the video from the various uh, um, telescopes and satellites and, and imaging recordings of what's happening with our sun. So they can tell you, look at these filaments here on the northern part of the sun. And I mean, it's, it's we'll see this kind of activity. And look, here's a sunspot here. And there's a little CME, but it's aimed in a different direction than Earth. The cool part about it is it's not to promote fear. Now, that's kind of an odd thing to say, if you, especially if you look at Suspicious Observer's YouTube channel. You'll notice that uh, the the person, I don't even know the name of the guy who does it. He's really good at what he does, but um, he talks about uh, ca- cad, I don't even know if I'm saying this correctly, Catos- catastro- catastrophism, anyway, catastrophes, and points to a 12,000-year cycle that the Earth and the Sun go through. But the really cool thing about this, and again, Scientifically, I think this guy may be more on target than a lot of the government-affiliated scientists, you know, whose paychecks depend on them towing a certain line. But it's fascinating how many different uh, events like volcanoes, uh, hurricanes, hailstorms, and lightning storms can be connected to solar activity. I don't understand it. So, you know, this is the blind leading the blind if I try to tell you this is how I think it works. But I think you could get a very good approximation of how this ties together by checking out Suspicious Observer's YouTube channel for yourself. One of the things I love most is uh, the the Suspicious Observer's guy uh, definitely cautions, you know, eyes wide open, no fear. In other words, this isn't about just let's scare ourselves silly and then, you know, run around waving our arms above our heads while we scream. It's about being aware of what's going on, taking the steps you can to to mitigate the impact on your life, and accepting there are some things you simply can't. I don't understand most of the science that's being talked about in these updates, but I watch his videos every single day that he releases them. I think you'll find them entertaining too, and if you're a scientific-minded person, you'll probably understand this at a much better level than I can. There's a link in the show notes if you want to check it out for yourself. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, I've got a little crib sheet I'm going to share with you about things you should know about COVID. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is the Brian Hyde show. All right, let's get to, let's get right to it here. I want to make clear that what I'm about to share with you is not to, for the purpose of hey, you want to go start some arguments? Here's what you can here's what you can use to own the libtards. I I've got a really good friend who um, you know is is just starting out on his own podcast adventure and 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 he's at that stage and I remember being there myself where it feels so good to call people names. But I want to tell you, what I'm about to share with you is not for the purpose of starting arguments. It's more for the purpose of knowing where you stand. And so often I wish I had the perfect answer to questions that arise whenever discussing controversies like COVID. But it's a complicated subject. It's not easy to keep all the facts and figures straight in your head. 
And that's why I think you might appreciate this 30-fact crib sheet from Kit Knightley. This was published on offguardian.org. It's actually off-guardian.org. 30 facts you need to know. This is your COVID crib sheet. Kit Knightley says, you asked for it, so we made it a collection of all the arguments you'll ever need. And again, I'm just going to emphasize, this doesn't mean that the best use of your time is to go out and start arguments or finish arguments or pick up arguments on social media. I think most people are, are immune to being argued into seeing the truth. But if you can at least calmly and clearly plant those seeds of truth and know what you're talking about without having to win, you know, the, the discussion, you'll find that minds will change or people will at least be open to, oh, well, I didn't realize there was another way to see this. I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself, but my days of uh, let's let's uh, let's argue, let's wrestle, you know, until somebody says uncle. Yeah, it's it's largely unproductive. So Kit Knightley says we get a lot of emails and private messages along these lines at offguardian.org. Do you have a source for X or can you point me to mask studies or I know I saw a graph for mortality, but I can't find it anywhere. And we understand it's been a long 18 months and there are many statistics and numbers to try to keep straight in your head. So to deal with all these requests, we decided to make a bullet-pointed and sourced list for all the key points, a one-stop shop. Here are the key facts and sources about the alleged pandemic that will help you get a grasp on what happened to the world since January 2020 and help you enlighten any of your friends who might still be trapped in the new normal fog. And these are some of the different areas that are covered. I'm not going to have time to cover all of them, but I'll, I'll pick a few of them just to, to give you an idea of what they have here. They cover COVID deaths. They cover lockdowns, PCR tests, asymptomatic infection, ventilators, masks, vaccines, also deception and foreknowledge. It's really good. And, and the sourcing here is excellent. I mean, they're, they're linked and documented just to, uh, Well, well done. So let's start with COVID deaths and mortality. First and foremost, number one point, this is from your crib sheet. The survival rate of COVID is over 99%. Government medical experts went out of their way to underline from the beginning of the pandemic, the vast majority of the population is not in any danger from COVID. Almost all of the studies on the infection fatality rate or IFR ratio, rather, IFR of COVID have returned results of between 0.04% and 0.5%, meaning COVID survival rate is at least 99.5%. I I know the news media is is blowing it up to, oh my gosh, people are dying everywhere. Um, Actually, I had a good friend contact me from from Southern Utah earlier this, this last weekend. And asking, hey man, I hear that uh, I hear the mortuaries in Idaho are running out of space. They're having to rent refrigerator trucks and so forth. Okay, you you won't notice that as you see people going about living their lives. There are not bodies being left out by the curb to be picked up, you know, with the with the garbage. It's not like that. Now, I have no doubt. I I know people personally who have been sickened or some who have died from COVID just within the last few weeks. But again, I think those numbers are being exaggerated. Here's the second point. There has been no unusual excess mortality. 
The press has called 2020 the UK's deadliest year since World War II, but that's misleading because it ignores the massive increase in the population since that time. A more reasonable statistical measure of mortality is the age-standardized mortality rate, ASMR. By this measure, 2020 isn't even the worst year for mortality since 2000. In fact, since 1943, only nine years have been better than 2020. Isn't that interesting? Similarly, in the U.S., the age-standardized mortality rate, or ASMR, is only at 2004 levels. And yes, they do have the graphs right here as part of the article. Now, for a detailed breakdown on how COVID affected mortality across Western Europe and the U.S., there's another link or two you can click there. What increases in mortality we could see, we have seen rather, have been, could be attributable to non-COVID causes. Fact 7, 9, and 19, which are covered you know, later on in the sheet. Number three, COVID death counts are artificially inflated. Countries around the globe have been defining a COVID death as a death by any cause within 28, 30, or 60 days of a positive test. Healthcare officials from Italy, Germany, the UK, US, Northern Ireland, and others have all admitted to this practice. Now, removing any distinction between dying of COVID and dying of something else after testing positive for COVID will naturally lead to overcounting of COVID deaths. British pathologist Dr. John Lee was warning of this substantial overestimate as early as last spring, and other mainstream sources have reported it too. And yes, there are links to each of these claims here. Considering the huge percentage of asymptomatic COVID infections, the well-known prevalence of serious comorbidities, and the potential for false positive tests, this renders the COVID death numbers an extremely unreliable statistic. Which brings us to point four. The vast majority of COVID deaths have had ser- have serious comorbidities. In March of 2020, the Italian government published statistics showing 99.2% of their COVID deaths had at least one serious comorbidity. And we're talking things like cancer, heart disease, dementia, Alzheimer's, kidney failure, and diabetes, among others. Over 50% of them had three or more serious pre-existing conditions. This pandemic has held up in all other countries over the course, or this pattern, rather, has held up over the course of the pandemic in all other countries. In October 2020, Freedom of Information Act request to the UK's ONS revealed less than 10% of the official COVID death count at that time had covid as the sole cause of death. The age, the average age of COVID death, by the way, is greater than the average life expectancy. The average age of a COVID death in the UK is 82.5 years. In Italy, that's 86. Germany, 83. Switzerland, 86. Canada, 86. The US, 78. Woo. Folks, what are we doing wrong here? Australia, 82. And in almost all cases, the median age of a COVID death is higher than the national life expectancy. As such, for most of the world, the pandemic has had little to no impact on life expectancy. Contrast this with the Spanish flu, which saw a 28% drop in life expectancy in the U.S. in just over a year. And the list goes on. COVID mortality exactly mirrors the natural mortality uh, What's number seven here? There's been a massive increase in the use of unlawful do not resuscitate orders. 
Lockdowns don't prevent the spread of disease. And again, this this is not just somebody's opinion. These are backed up by the charts and by the graphs and by the documentation that can show it. Lockdowns kill people. Hospitals were never unusually overburdened. This is one of the reasons why I'm very suspicious when people tell me, oh, yeah, I understand your hospitals in Idaho are all terribly over overburdened. <laughs> and it's, it's all because Idaho has one of the lowest vaccination rates of any of the states. I will tell you, I've met more people who are skeptics of this mandated jab. And uh, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's an individual decision. If you feel better and if you feel safer that you, you are mitigating, you know, the risk by getting the vaccine, by all means, do it. But there is no moral authority whatsoever to force people who don't want it to get it. I mean, we're seeing for the first time in history, we're seeing people who haven't taken a medicine being blamed for illness in the people who have. Think about that thought the medicine was supposed to protect them. Anyway, I hope you'll check out this crib sheet with all these COVID arguments and all the different things you would need to know to talk about COVID-19. It's a pretty comprehensive work. Somebody put some very serious effort into this. I have a link to it in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. At least you'll know where you stand. But don't waste your time getting into arguments. Trust me. It's not going to change people's minds. This is The Brian Hyde Show.